I'm, uh, I'm wanting to begin by welcoming you if you're visiting for the first time, and I've met many of you already, but we want to tell you that we love you. And the Lord Jesus loves you, and we're family, and we're glad that you're here. We pray that God will bless your time this morning as we uh, have already worshipped and enjoyed the Lord and now uh, turn to the Word to study and to be taught by Him. Uh, but I'm also constrained uh, from the very beginning to tell you I just have such a heart this morning that somehow I could possibly, by God's grace, communicate to you the message that He's put on my heart in Revelation 5. Um, most every Sunday I, I sense the great need that I've got for His Spirit and His power to be able to share with you the Word, but even more so today. And so I want to pray and, uh, and ask that God would use this time this morning to inspire you and encourage you to walk more closely with Jesus. And that when we leave today, we wouldn't be the same, that we would be men and women who have a greater heart than ever before to serve Jesus Christ and to love Him with all of our hearts. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning, God, and I'm so aware of my desperate need for you, God. I have no capacity or ability in myself to present the Word of God apart from your Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking not for my benefit, but for the benefit of these wonderful men and women and young people who you love so deeply and who you care about so intensely and who you know so intimately that they might be fed this morning and built up in their holy walk with Jesus Christ. And so I surrender myself to you and say, fill me that I might somehow describe to them these indescribable passages that we're looking at this morning. And Father, that our hearts would all be moved to worship and to love you more than ever before. And so have your way. Transform us, conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 5 as we continue our study in that amazing book, the Apocalypsis, the unveiling of the future history of the world and the work of God through Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. 
Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Oh Lord, we ask for hearts like this, Lord. God, we ask that you would give us hearts that would be like the hearts of those who know you and are near you. We're full of worship, full of praise. We're so inadequate, Lord. We're so distant from what we've just read. I'm so distant from this, God. God, we pray that you draw us close, Lord. Those that are near you, the ones that are closest to you are full of worship. Night and day, falling down, prostrating themselves before you in your presence and worshiping you. God, forgive us and make us men and women like this this morning. In Jesus' name. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the book of Revelation and the work of God. And last week, we spoke about Revelation chapter 4. I'm sorry, I'm just... But chapter 4 was a prelude to the final events of human history that are unfolding and many of them are taking place right in front of our very eyes. Chapter 5 will end, as we just read, with worship of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 ended with worship of Jesus Christ who is a creator of everything. Chapter 5 ends with worship of Jesus Christ who is the redeemer of the world. We begin in... in uh, Verse 1, with John having this continued vision that the Lord is unveiling to him, it's a, it's a peek into the future of what's coming. And he says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about this scroll because until we understand the scroll, we really can't understand the rest of the passage or, I believe, the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, the scroll in, in the Greek is biblion, and it means a book. But we know that the books that we know of and, and experience today that are folded and bound on the back were really only invented in the 2nd and 3rd century, long after John had written this revelation. The book that uh, John is talking about was a scroll. It was a long strip of papyrus or parchment that was woven together, and it was usually rolled up on a stick or a dowel and then it would be unread or read as, as the uh, parchment was unrolled. Now this particular parchment or scroll that John had that was given to him and that was in the hand of God was 
written on both sides. Now that is unusual. Most often a scroll was only written on one side because of the construction of papyrus paper and scrolls in that day. Uh, the backing of that scroll would be very rough and difficult to write on. And so usually the one side was the smooth side and the one side was a rough side and usually only one side, the smooth side, was written on. But we know from this passage that this was written on both sides. Now this isn't the first time in Scripture we find uh, a passage or a scroll or something written by God and, and containing not just the front and the back in the, in the writing. We find that with the, uh, with the um, Ten Commandments written on the front and the back. We also find in the scroll that Ezekiel was given and saw stretched out in the hand of God a scroll that was uh, unrolled before him and again it had writing on both sides. And uh, probably what we can surmise from this, if nothing else, is that this text that God was giving was absolutely full as it could be. Every little square inch of this parchment was filled with the purposes and the destiny of God and the purposes of God, not just for humans in terms of our historical history and the end times, but even for our very lives today. Now, John goes on and says in his description of the scroll that it was sealed with seven seals. Now, the sealing of a scroll was very common in, in, uh, in biblical times. Uh, most often it was a, a wax seal. The hot wax would be poured on this parchment after it was rolled tight. And then the person who had the authority to seal it would, with a signet ring, roll that signet ring or a piece of clay into that uh, wax signifying that it was, it was sealed, not to be opened unless it was opened by someone who was authorized. But interestingly, this document didn't just have one seal, but it had seven seals. And I'll talk about that in a few moments, what that means. But if nothing else, it signifies the absolute inviolability of the document. It was not to be read by anyone except by one who was authorized. It was not to be tampered with. It was protected. The contents and, uh, and the authority, those issues were completely protected by the sealing of the scroll. Now, I want to take a few minutes and talk about the significance of this scroll. There are a lot of people who have a lot of ideas about the contents of this scroll and I have to tell you from the very beginning that I have no clue with certainty what this scroll contains. But from other passages of Scripture as well as what we know this scroll will unfold in the rest of the book of Revelation, we have some very clear ideas of what it might contain. Now, there are three things that I want to present to you as possibilities. The first is that this could be a last will and testament of God. Not in the sense that he's going to die, but it's the inheritance of Christ to come. Now, in ancient Rome, last will and testaments were sealed with seven seals, interestingly. Sealed on the outside of a scroll that would contain the contents of this will and testament. And so this could be... God's testament concerning the promise of the inheritance of Christ, not only for Christ himself, but for those who call on his name and are followers of Jesus Christ. Now, there's another possibility that this scroll contains nothing more than the unfolding of the history of God's purpose for the world and the destiny of mankind. As we go through the book of Revelation, we'll discover that these seven seals, as they're broken, unfold and, and are the beginnings of the outpouring of God's judgment designed to bring rebellious man to his knees, to defeat Satan's kingdom, to restore the kingdom of the earth under the visible authority of God, and to reestablish man as God had originally attended, intended him to be before the fall and the usurping of Satan himself. 
Now the third possibility I want to bring up and I want to spend a little bit of time on is that this very well could be the title deed to the earth. In Israel law, all the way back to the beginning of Exodus and Numbers and then most clearly in the book of Jeremiah chapter 32, God had established a plan in order to redeem someone who had fallen so deeply in debt that they had no way of ever escaping. You see, God never wanted any of his people to ever be slaves to anyone else. And so when a, when a man or a woman or a family found themselves so deeply in debt that there was no human possible recovery, it made way for that person to be redeemed. There were two ways he did it. One was through the year of Jubilee. Every seven years, all the land returned to the, to the original owner. Even if they had lost it, it would be returned. And that kept anyone from being a slave in the, in, the, in the kingdom of God, in the people of Israel. But there was also another way that didn't require the waiting of that time period. It could be done immediately. And it was called the redemption law, the law of redemption. So if an Israelite owned a piece of property and for whatever reason found themselves so deeply in debt, I'm not sure quite how that would happen. They don't have credit cards like we do. But I'm sure that they could overextend themselves and have a crop failure and, you know, just very much like uh, uh, people in, in uh, the farming community or agriculture can have a couple of bad years and it can just completely wipe them out. And God made a, a way for people who experience this kind of financial catastrophe to maintain and to get their land back. It was called the law of redemption. There are three things that were required for this redemptive act to take place. The first thing is that there needed to be a redeemer. That person was called a goel, a kinsman redeemer. Someone that was a relative who was not only willing but able to redeem this property back. They had, to, they had to be a kinsman. They had to be a relative. They had to be willing to do this redemptive act of basically mortgaging this property and giving it back to the original owner. But they also had to be able it's not good enough to have a heart to do it or to be a relative if you don't have the capacity, the financial ability to do it. If you can't pay the price, then you can't be the kinsman redeemer. So all three of those aspects need to take place. Now interestingly, I mentioned that the last will and testament was one of the documents that required seven seals to be official. The only other document that we know of uh, in uh, in Greek and, and New Testament history that required seven seals was a land title deed transfer. And so we find again the possibility that this very well could be the deed to the earth. We have a beautiful picture of the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. Most of you have already read this book, but maybe you haven't fully considered the importance of the book of Ruth in terms of human history. We just think of it as this beautiful love story, this, this woman and her mother-in-law who are destitute, who catastrophe strikes. The mother-in-law's husband dies, and then three of the sons die, and one of those sons happened to be the husband of Ruth. And if you were without a husband and a widow in those days and without property, you were in deep trouble. And they had a piece of property, but they had lost it because they had no funds. They were destitute. And then we know how Boaz takes a liking to Ruth. And Ruth begins to glean from his field, very much like paupers do in, in those times, is that they wouldn't glean everything from the field and it was God's law that, that people that were poor and had very little resources could come and follow the, 
the harvesters and pick up grain so that they could eat and feed themselves. And Boaz owned a field and he took notice of Ruth, not a demanding woman, a humble woman, a woman who loved God and was faithful to her mother-in-law beyond what was expected. And he admired that. And he began, began to really fall head over heels for this gal. And Ruth began to be drawn to him and she noticed that he was, he was making advances. He was, he was doing special things for her and making it a little easier for her to gather large amounts of grain in a very short period of time. There was a problem though because Naomi had a piece of land that she had lost because of her destitution. Boaz knew this and he thought, you know, I'm going to buy that piece of land. I'm going, to, I'm going to redeem her land for her so that she won't be destitute any longer. But there was a problem. There was someone in line first before Boaz. This other person had the right of redemption before Boaz did. And the short of the story is, is that he offered this to the man and the man said, oh yeah, I want that piece of land. You bet. I'm very interested in that piece of land. And Boaz said, well... Don't forget that when you buy the land, you're buying not only the land, but you're acquiring Naomi and Ruth along with that piece of land. We're not exactly sure what was going on, but the guy probably already had a wife. And he's thinking, oh man, my wife would have a cow if I brought another woman home. You know, can you imagine? So he says, I, no, 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 I, you didn't mention that. But now that you told me that, I, no, I can't take it. I can't redeem the property. And Boaz is going, yes. You know, he's going he's to get the property. He's next in line and he knows it. Now, he's a kinsman. He qualifies. He's willing. Oh, man, is he willing. He loves Ruth and he loves Naomi. But is he able? Yes, he's able. He's a wealthy man. And so they go through the process of redeeming the land. And, of course, he acquires Ruth as his wife. Now, Ruth is really a picture of Israel. Spiritually destitute, lost everything because of the fall. And of course, Boaz is a picture of the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who was a relative, who was willing, and who was able, and considered Israel precious enough to make redemption possible. So the question is, what's the connection with us? Well, this is the connection. The Bible says clearly that the earth is the Lord's. Everything in it belongs to Him. He created it. He holds it together. By His Word, we have our very being. But something terrible happened. When there was sin in the Garden of Eden, something terrible happened. We became destitute. We lost everything. And the title deed was temporarily transferred to Satan himself. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know it because Scripture makes it clear that in Matthew 4, 8, if you recall the temptation of Jesus, he's out in the desert for 40 days and then, the, and then Satan comes, the tempter comes to him and he tempts him. Listen to Matthew 4, 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. And he said, all of this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. You know what I find most interesting about that text? Is that Jesus doesn't say, oh, give me a break. Satan, this world belongs to God, not you. 
It's already mine. But he doesn't say that, does he? That lack of comment is an affirmation that Satan's claim is valid. Jesus doesn't challenge his claim. In fact, in Romans 8, the Bible says that all of creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That's us. That we, not long from now, will be caught up with the Lord and that we will rule and reign with Him and the earth itself is actually waiting for that. It goes on and says that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And not only so, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So God created this world for His glory and His pleasure. But because of man's choice in the garden and we validate and, and affirm that over and over in our own lives by sin, that it was lost. Paradise was lost. And we were lost. But fortunately, God had a plan of redemption. He is our great Goel, our kinsman redeemer. Does he meet the criteria of a kinsman redeemer? Well, he has to be a relative. Is God our relative? Well, in a sense, no. But in another sense, he is. God removed in the heaven far above all creation, ruling and reigning. I don't, he's not my relative until Christ came. Why did Christ come in the flesh? Why did Christ have to incarnate himself in such a manner that he could be like us? Why was that necessary? So that he could fulfill the requirement of the kinsman redeemer. Could God have saved us without coming in the flesh? Couldn't He have just died on the cross or somehow managed another avenue for salvation? Well, possibly, but not according to His own word. It couldn't have happened. He needed to be a kinsman. And if you've ever wondered why Jesus had to come to earth, it was because He needed to be like us. He needed to be a man in the flesh, knowing the strengths and the weaknesses of flesh and knowing the pain and the difficulty. And he also became a faithful high priest who was able to lead us to the Father, having been tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. And so Jesus qualifies as the kinsman redeemer. Does he qualify as, as someone who's willing? Absolutely. He says in John 10 that, I lay my life down only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Why? Well, why did Boaz lay it down for Ruth and Naomi? He had plenty of land. It wasn't that he wanted another little parcel, but he was head over heels in love with Ruth. It's not way, a way that we normally phrase it, but do you realize that God is head over heels about you? <laughs> and he just thinks about you all the time. He loves you deeply. He enjoys your intimacy and worship of him and the time that you spend with Him. There's nothing He wants more than you. So He's willing. The final qualification, is He able? Yes, He's able. 
In fact, he's the only one that's able. The Bible says that there is no salvation except in Christ. There is no other Redeemer. There is no other way. Only Jesus Christ, perfect, without sin, was qualified to pay the terrible price of sin. The Bible says that sin requires death. The death of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl. Eternal separation from God. Physical death, but then spiritual death for eternity. That is the requirement of the law for sin. And a sinner cannot pay the price because a sinner is part of the problem. And the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one, except Jesus Christ. And that qualified him to be able to go to the cross for your sin and my sin and the sin of the world and pay the full price. And when his arms were stretched out and he breathed his last and he said, It is finished, he was saying the price has been paid in full. Jesus Christ is the kinsman redeemer. He became a relative through his incarnation. He's willing because of his deep, deep love for each of you and for all of humankind. And he's also able because he paid the full price on the cross for our sins. So what's the conclusion? What is the scroll? What does the scroll contain? I believe it contains really a all of the things that I've mentioned. I believe that it's a scroll about judgment, which we'll see in the weeks ahead. I believe it's a scroll of the inheritance, marking out what Christ is, is due and what will come to the believer who is a co-inheritor with Christ. I think it contains the announcement of the consummation of all of human history, how things will ultimately end for all people, the judgment for the world and the final reward for the saints. I believe that Christ alone as the Messiah is the executor of the purposes of God. He is the kinsman redeemer of the world and of mankind which has been sold into slavery because of our sin and rebellion against God but which Christ the Messiah has purchased back through his sacrifice on the cross to the glory and praise and honor of God the Father. So the scroll is a pretty important document. I've taken some time in this message to talk about it because it's so critical that you realize what's at stake. Everything is at stake. Everything matters. Every moment, every hour, every day, every conversation, every interaction, it matters because so much is at stake. Now the angel in verse 2 is identified by John as being a mighty angel and he's proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? The word worthy means deserving, acceptable, having authority. This goes back to the whole idea of the person who's eligible as a kinsman redeemer. And the angel is proclaiming in a loud voice who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. And as we find out in verse 3, the scripture says, unfortunately, that no one was found to be worthy. I'm imagining in my mind that this angel, possibly Gabriel, is announcing in a a way that's only mentioned twice in scripture, proclaiming in a loud voice in such a manner, who is worthy to open the scroll and break the seals? And you remember, we've got the 
the four living creatures at the center of the throne and then we've got the 24 elders surrounding it. We know the hosts of heaven, which we'll talk about number in the, in the millions of millions, an innumerable amount of angels. And all of this is happening and, and John is there and this angel makes this, this pronouncement that's in the form of a question and there's silence. And I'm thinking that John is, is thinking, well, somebody's got to say something here. Isn't there someone that can redeem the world? But there's silence. No response. And the gravity and the enormity of the silence begins to hit John. And he realizes that if there's not a redeemer, then all is lost. There's no hope without a redeemer. I don't think John would have wept. In fact, this passage, it says he wept and he wept. And it means in Greek to weep convulsively. I mean, the guy was out of control with grief. I've only wept a couple of times like that in my whole life where I, I actually wept convulsively. It, it happened in, in 1989 and I, I won't go into the reasons why. But I didn't know I could weep like that. I didn't know I had the capacity to, to really just fall apart with grief. But this is what's happening with John because he realized how much was at stake. And when there was silence, he realized that without someone who was deserving and had authority to open the scroll that we were destined for a hopeless existence. In Ephesians 2.12, one of the, I think one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible re- revolves around the condition of man mankind without God. It says that we were without hope and without God in the world. I don't think there can be a more descriptive phrase of what it's like to to not know God. To be without hope and without God in this world. Living in this world without hope and without God. But that's what John knew would be not just the temporal experience of mankind without this Redeemer but the eternal experience And as John is weeping and falling apart with grief, one of the elders got off his throne and he said, John, don't weep. And he goes on and says, See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and and its seven seals. And in the Greek construction of this phrase, it's actually turned around just a little bit. What it really should say is, See, the triumphant one, the Lion of the tribe of Judah and the Root of David, he is triumphed, he is able to open the scroll. Why is that important? Well, because Jesus first and foremost is the triumphant one. This word is actually in the Greek, overcomer. It's the same word that's used seven times in, in uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 regarding the churches. That we are called as believers to overcome. That we are called to victory in Jesus Christ. And he says that we will be rewarded as we overcome and as we live for Christ with a whole heart. And Jesus himself had to overcome. He's the supreme example in every area, the one that we should follow, the one that we should emulate, the one that we should pattern our lives after. And so Jesus Christ triumphs. Well, how did he triumph? Well, he triumphed through his death on the cross and when he did, he paid the penalty for sin as I mentioned a moment ago. But he also triumphed through his resurrection because at that point he put to to death forever death in Hades. It made him 
the one with authority, the one that had the capacity, the one who was able to deliver us from death and Hades as well so that we wouldn't experience the second death. And John goes on to describe this triumphant one, this one who has overcome, this great lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, both of which are messianic designations that have prophetic significance in the fulfillment of Christ's messianic ministry. And so the elder proclaims this and John is like, you know, all was lost. Have you ever had that experience where you just think that the end is here, everything's over, it's finished, everything is just going to fall apart and all of a sudden someone steps in and rescues the moment? It doesn't happen very often in our lives, but maybe you've experienced that. But that's what happens here. And this elder steps in at the moment when John believes everything is lost and he says there is a triumphant one, there is one who is able, one who is willing, one who is a kinsman redeemer. And he's the lion of the tribe of Judah and he is the root of David. And so I'm imagining John thinking, wow, where is this lion? You know, show him to me. I want to see him now. And you know, he's wiping the tears from his eyes and he's, He's overcome, but now he's, he's gone from despair to incredible anticipa- anticipation of, of this lion of the tribe of Judah. And so he turns, and what does he see? Verse 6, he says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. My son is uh, playing soccer again for the second season and uh, at the beginning of their first practice they always have to pick a name and uh, so they came up with Speed Tigers I, I didn't really like the name I was you know Speed Tiger sounded a little strange to me they, everything one kid said Speed something and then every animal was Speed Tiger Speed Leopard Speed so we ended up with Speed Tigers and you know most of the time when we have a you know a sporting event or anything like that we're thinking bears and bulls and falcons and lions right I can't imagine an NFL football team, the Mighty Lambs. (laughs) They've got lambs on the side and the the cheerleaders are dressed in little lamb suits and everybody goes, (laughs) you know, there's something wrong with a picture of a victor, a triumphant one being a lamb. And not only a a, a lamb, but a, a slain lamb, weak, wounded. It points to the the irony of what God says he looks at in a man and a woman. He's looking not for strength, but he's looking for a person who acknowledges their weakness and their desperate need for Jesus Christ. Moment by moment, living at the behest and direction and leadership of the Holy Spirit. And so we have a lamb slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by these four living creatures and the 24 elders, And it says he had seven horns and seven eyes, just, you know, referencing uh, the perfect might and perfect wisdom of the Lamb of God and the seven spirits referencing the Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth. And he saw this lamb. I'm not quite sure how he did it because lambs don't really have hands. But he was able to go to the Father who had in his right hand this scroll, an open hand waiting for someone who was had the authority and, and was deserving to take the scroll and he came and he, this lamb, Jesus Christ, took that scroll out of his hand. Now something at this point just, the, the place exploded. There's a, a, a video that my kids love to watch and I have to admit it's one of the, I think one of the 
greatest little videos I've ever seen. Babe. Anybody see that movie? Do you remember when, uh, when the gentleman who was working with Babe and, and uh, they, had, uh, they were actually going through the, the, the paces with the sheep at this contest and everybody's flabbergasted. A pig instead of a sheepdog is, uh, is performing in such an incredible way. And these sheep, you know, because of course Babe is talking to the sheep and they're helping him out and everything. And, uh, but at the end of this, you know, the gate closes. Do you remember that scene? And, and it creaks and it's just silence. And the gate closes and clicks and the place explodes, you know, in the grandstands. People are just throwing their hats off and it's incredible. The excitement. And I'm sitting there, at, I'm like, yeah! <laughs> you know, I'm in my living room, you know, just excited about a movie. And, and this, this tremendous event that just took place in this film. But this is nothing. This is so tiny. It's not to be even mentioned in comparison with the victory of Jesus Christ by taking that scroll. By taking that scroll that meant everything for us. Everything for you, everything for the world, everything for the destiny of mankind. And at that moment, heaven exploded. They went absolutely berserk with praise and glory and honor to Jesus Christ. Let's read what they said and what happened. It says at that moment when he had taken it in verse 8, that the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down. I mean, these I have to tell you, as we go through this book, you were going to find them falling down over and over and over. I, I, I'm assuming they've got like some sort of you know, protection on uh, to prevent it from being hurt, but these guys are on their face constantly before God. There's something very instructive about that for us as believers, that the ones that are closest to God are on their face before God continually, night and day worshiping. And so they're on their face before the Lamb and they had a harp and they, it's a lyre in the Greek and they were holding the golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. And I just want to encourage you is that, you know, a lot of times think, people think that prayer is just, you know, kind of, um, does it ever really reach God? Does it ever really make any difference? Does it ever have any real significance? And, and I want to tell you that not only in this life does it matter what you do on your knees before God and that God listens and He answers from heaven. But the Bible says that this prayer is a, is a fragrant incense in the throne room of God. And in this passage that we're looking at in Revelation 5, your prayers are contained in a golden bowl like, that are like incense, a fragrant aroma that's deeply pleasing to the Father. And these 24 elders pour this fragrant aroma out before the presence of God as they sing and they worship. And what do they say? They sang a new song. Not an old song. Why was it new? It was new because what had just happened had never happened before. No one had ever taken the scroll out of the Father's hand before. No one ever had the authority before. This event had never taken place in the history of mankind or even in the history of the world or the history of God's person. God's existence, which is infinite. And so it had to be a new song. It had never been sung before. I don't know who wrote it and I don't know how they got it together so quick, but they sang it in unison together. You are worthy to take the scroll. Worthy means deserving. He had the authority. 
to take the scroll. You are worthy to take it and you are worthy to open its seals because you were slain. Do you see the price that was paid is the basis upon which he was able to take this scroll and open its seals. And with your blood you purchased men for God. Do you see the redemption? We were sold into slavery. The Bible says that before you came to Christ that you were hopelessly lost apart from Jesus. That whether you knew it or not, the Bible says that you were a slave to sin, not even able to be righteous, not even able to live a life that's pleasing to God. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ redeemed you. You were forever owned by the enemy because of our sin, because of our sinful nature, and also because of our own acts of sin. Inescapable that we were hopelessly lost. But Jesus, our great Redeemer, who was willing because of His great love, and able because of the sacrifice on the cross, redeemed men and women for Himself from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. This is just unbelievable that not only did He take sinful people like ourselves that deserved eternal separation from God, didn't deserve His grace, and yet He gave us His grace freely and if I had just been told, look, you're going to just kind of, I need you guys for the kingdom because we've got to clean the toilets and sweep the streets and, you know, we need people like you around. And I'm thinking, all right, <laughs> you know, thank you, I'll do it, you know. But it's not enough for Jesus. No. Not nearly enough. He takes us out of the ash heap, out of our, the miry muck of our own failure and miserable sinfulness. And he says, no, it's not enough for a son or daughter of mine to to be left to do menial things. No, you are a kingdom and priests unto my God to serve Him for all eternity and you will reign with Him. Can you imagine that He would give us such a privilege? And yet that's what Jesus has done and they recognize it in their worship. So we've got the 24 elders and we've got the four living creatures. We've got a total of 28 people just worshiping God with a new song. And there's a domino effect that takes place because after they're done with their song, it says in verse 11 that I looked and heard the voice of many angels and it says numbering the thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. How many is 10,000 times 10,000? Well, it's 100 million. But what's thousands times thousands? How many are there? I don't know, but it's innumerable. The point in the Greek is that there are countless numbers of these angels. And what are they doing? It says they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So they're all gathering around these people that have already sung this new song. And now they sing in a loud voice. It's not enough that it's just singing, you know, very sweetly. No, it's a loud voice. They're excited. They're passionate. It's kind of like that worship this morning. I was just, oh, especially that first song. It's an old one. But man, it was like, oh, worshiping loudly. I can't... I can't sing loud enough and worship hard enough for the worthiness of God. And so they sing loud, loudly and they say something that the 24 elders have already said and the four living creatures, worthy, you're deserving, you have the authority. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Again, the price that was necessary to redeem us, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise.
These are the heavenly hosts who know the work of God. Do you know that right now the angels are watching everything that takes place on earth? They're watching your lives. The Bible says we even have angels that are watching over us, that we have angels assigned to take care of us, to guard us, to protect us. Even now, those angels are here among us. And even now, they're calling us to discover the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ that we would worship Him too with them. And so they call us to worship. And so the untold millions of the heavenly hosts worship God and then it's not enough because in verse 13 that we're told that then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. This week I was, as I was meditating on this and just really overwhelmed and by the worthiness of Jesus Christ something dawned on me that I'd never really thought about before very deeply, but I'd never thought more deeply about until this week. You know, when we're out and about, I hear the wind blowing through the trees. We have some beautiful birds that sing right on the fence in our backyard every morning. I hear the rain. I can actually hear it. We did a wedding yesterday uh, and um, out at uh, Moloa'a and the rain came and as it was hitting the tent. As I hear the wind blowing as I'm walking and sitting on the beach and it's blowing past my ears, it makes a noise. As I hear dogs barking, I don't really like dogs anymore. I don't know why. we got so many of them in our neighborhood. They're just everywhere you go. It's like they run out at you and scare you and think they're going to bite you. But they're barking everywhere. And I'm not really a big fan of cat. Forgive me. I'm sorry. I know I'm really offending a lot of you. Um, but... Uh, but it dawned on me that, you know, all these years I thought that the noises that I heard were just noises. I thought dogs barking were just dogs making noise. I thought cats meowing were just cats, you know, meowing. I thought that the waves crashing on the shore of the ocean were just the sound of waves hitting the beach. But it dawned on me as I was reading this that I, I don't know what they're saying. Do you know what they're saying? I don't really know. I really don't have a clue. But it dawned on me this week from this passage that they're worshiping God. Everything in all creation worships Him. Even that passage that Johnny read so beautifully this morning says that the trees of the field clap their hands. The Bible is full, especially in Psalms, of inanimate objects worshiping God. Stones crying out. The mountains rejoicing. The hills being glad. The, the thundering and lightning being a demonstration of the power of God and the worship of God. And it dawned on me all these years I've been missing the beauty of, of the worship of God in creation. And as I've been walking around for the last few days, I just like, I have a constant reminder in my ears the kind of man I need to be as a believer in Jesus Christ. And that's a worshiper of God. And so all of creation, nothing's left out of this description, interestingly, except two groupings of people. One is Satan and his angels, and the other is man. Isn't it interesting that everyone but those two groups worship God? The two mightiest and most beautiful forms of God's creation made in his image, destined for his praise and worship, 
are the two groups that are resistant to praise Him and to worship Him. Every other creature, every other created thing worships God continually. You have the honor and the privilege every day to make a choice to join in with all of creation and to be a worshiper of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain, our Redeemer. God, in a very interesting twist of events, has given you that privilege to either worship or to be self-absorbed. And really, that's what worship is. It's a giving up of our self-absorption. It's a giving up of our self-rule. It's a giving up of our, of our self-thinking. And it's a turning ourselves over for the purpose of worshiping God. And so these creatures and creations of God sing this song to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Interestingly, the rest of creation doesn't just worship the Lamb, but they worship Him who sits on the throne, of course, as God the Father, but also to the Lamb, the slain Lamb, the Lamb who came in weakness but now reigns in power and majesty. And at that point, the scripture says that the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. As I was thinking about this passage, I, I was thinking to myself, and if you'd like to think along with me, you're certainly welcome to, but I was thinking that God has spared nothing in order to redeem us, in order to redeem me. Not only was he a kinsman because of his coming to the earth as a baby and then growing to a man and then sacrificing his life at the age of 33 for the sins of the world, but he was also willing and to think of Jesus so in love with me that he would sacrifice everything is hard for me to understand because I know myself and I know how ugly I am and how unloving I am and how different from Christ I am. And yet day by day He's conforming me to His image as He is you. But He spared nothing in order for me to have that eternal life and to be redeemed back to God, my Goel, my great kinsman redeemer. And I thought to myself, and maybe you can think with me, as am I as I consider him who held nothing back, am I holding anything back? Am I holding back my time? Am I holding back private sin in my life? Am I holding back my heart? Am I holding back my worship? And as I prayed this week, I said, Bob, it's time to turn over the scroll that represents the deed to your life to the only one who's worthy to open it and to turn my life every part of it over to Jesus Christ that he might open it and that he might rewrite my life give me a fresh start and begin to inscribe on my heart and my life the beauty of the character and the nature of his son Jesus Christ I'd encourage you this morning as we as I close that there may be some of you today that have never met Christ you've never experience the beauty of a relationship with Jesus Christ and you are in that place of hopeless despair because you've tried everything and you still 
keep coming up empty and disappointed. The Bible says that God has made a way for you to have life. It's by receiving Him as Savior, by accepting this gift, by saying, yes, I want you to be my kinsman redeemer. Thank you that you're willing. Forgive me of my, my sin that has cost you so dearly. But thank you that you are willing and able to pay the price and that you did and I received that gift. My heart and my life now belong to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There may be others today that are your believers and maybe you're like me that you know you read and hear a passage like this this morning and you're prompted to realize that there needs to be a lot more worship taking place in our lives, that we need to be joining all of creation, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the host of heaven, as well as every created thing in worshiping God and that our lives need to be much more consumed with worshiping God than ourselves. All our time spent on our own business, our own things, but Jesus says, I want you to live for me. I'm encouraging you this morning to respond to Jesus Christ. Give him everything. Don't hold back anything. He's your kinsman redeemer. He loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we give you the glory and the praise. And God, as we walk out of here today, may we be absolutely overwhelmed by the beauty of your creation and a recognition that though man may not have ears to hear the words of your creation worshiping you, Nonetheless, your word says that all of creation worships you night and day. Father, may we be men and women who join in that heavenly chorus with the four elders, the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the hosts of heaven and all of creation. And may our life be pleasing to you, God, as we worship you, the Lamb who was slain, that we might have life. Thank you for your love. We love you, Jesus. Amen.